Hello, everybody. I hope you've been well. I feel we are getting into a quite a busy time of year with Christmas coming and everything. And I know that by the time you listen to this podcast, it would still be in October. Um, but, you know, the, the Christmas um, atmosphere is upon us. Not so much the joy as the busyness. I suppose. So I hope you are all celebrating and enjoying this busy period before Christmas time. Now let's continue. We are going to talk about Horace, one of my favorite people ever. And um, enjoy. Welcome to History Made Beautiful, a podcast about the beauty, diversity, faith, and community in world history. Here is your hostess, author and historian, Martini Fisher. The works of Quintus Horatius Flaccus, or Horace, spans an extraordinarily wide range, making him one of the central authors in Latin literature. He seemed to be just as comfortable writing about love and wine as he was about philosophy and literary uh, criticism. But the phrase that both best encapsulates Horace's moral stance and saved him from oblivion is the phrase carpe diem, which I know every single one of us has heard of it numerous times before. This phrase, carpe diem, endures well to the modern ages as a slogan on t-shirts and the name of a trendy line of leather goods. More than a poet, Horace was also a key literary figure in the regime of uh, Emperor Augustus. Uh, Quintilian described Horace's versatility as being, and I quote, lofty sometimes, yet he is also full of charm and grace, versatile in his figures, and felicitously daring in his choice of words. This very versatility may have been his saving grace as his career coincided with Rome's momentous change from a republic to an empire a change which would have demanded him to maintain a sort of a delicate balance between his old Republican friends and his association with the new emperor. This earned him uh, praise by some, yet for others he was described as nothing more than, and I quote, a well-mannered court slave. So to investigate Horace's experience in this um, delicate period, the poet himself seems to be the most valuable resource. Consistent with his ambiguity, Horace speaks from each genre as an I, who is both no one socially and a member of the inner circle. Horace's father was a slave, who gained his freedom before Horace's birth. He then went on to become an auctioneer's assistant. He evidently flourished as he was not 
only able to own a small property, he could also afford to take his son to Rome and personally ensure that he, he got the best available education. So Horace found himself a student in Athens by 46 BC. And two years later, after the murder of Julius Caesar, Athens came into the possession of his assassins, Brutus and Cassius, who clashed with Mark Antony and Octavian, Caesar's great-nephew and appointed heir. Horace joined uh, Brutus's army and evidently made such an impression that he was appointed uh, tribunus, um, sorry, tribunus militum, <laughs> um, which basically means tribune of the soldier. To put this in a context, a tribunus militum is a rank just below the legatus, which was equivalent to a modern high-ranking general officer, as young men of equestrian rank often served as tribunus militum as a stepping stone to the senate. This would have been an exceptional accomplishment for Horace, who was basically just a freedman's son. In the rather peculiar absent um, of Legatus, Horace and his fellow tribunes commanded one of Brutus's and Cassius's legions at the two battles of Philippi, pitting himself against Anthony and Octavian. After their total defeat, Horace led back to Italy only to find that his father's farm at Venusia had been confiscated to provide land for Octavian's veterans. Horace then proceeded to Rome, and by 39 BC he had obtained a general amnesty as well as a minor post as one of the clerks of the treasury. A year later, he was introduced to Gaius Maecenas, who later brought him to the notice of the new Roman Emperor Octavian, the man he fought against in Philippi. Now we may consider about the change in Horace's ideals as he was a high-ranking military officer, Brutus and Cassius, before his encounter with Octavian. This question is addressed in his epodes as the tone reflects his anxious mood after the Battle of Philippi. Uh, Horace shows himself sensitive to the tone of political life at the time. The uncertainty of the future before the final, final encounter between Octavian and Mark Antony, as well as just the overall weariness of the population in the face of continuing violence. The first book of the satires, which he published in 35 BC, um, reflects Horace's commitment to the young emperor's attempt of restoring traditional morality, uh, defending small landowners from large estates, combating debts, and encouraging uh, novi homines or new men to take their place next to the traditional Republican aristocracy. Another clue of Horace's change in attitude to align himself with the new regime uh, came after Octavian had defeated Antony and Cleopatra at Actium in 3031 BC. So Horace published his second book of eight satires in 3229 uh, BC, 
While in the first satires, uh, Horace had limited himself to attacking relatively unimportant figures such as uh, businessmen or courtesans, he showed an even less aggressive tone in the second book by criticizing absolutely no one at all, preferring to kind of delegate the job of critique to others. While Octavian, styled Augustus in 27 BC, settled down, Horace published his three books of odes in 23rd BC, where he stayed clear of any talks of political discontentment and described his personal experiences, familiarizing the reader with his everyday world, focusing on the customs of a sophisticated and refined Roman society. Although some of the odes are about Maecenas or Augustus, um, Horace never confined himself to a single subject or mood. However, his political verse expressed the ideological commitments of Augustus's government. Other Augustan themes that appear in Horace's lyric verse include the eternity of Roman political dominion and the affirmation of the continuity of the Republican tradition with the Augustan Principate. Now, this seemed to impress Augustus as the emperor offered uh, Horace the post of his private secretary. However, maintaining his independence, um, Horace declined on the plea of ill health. Augustus didn't resent this in fact, the two men seem to have developed a loyal friendship somehow. Suetonius, a biographer of the 2nd century BC, uh, quotes a letter uh, that Horace received from Augustus from which it emerged that Horace was, I quote, short and fat. Um, Horace himself actually good-naturedly confirmed his short stature. And by this time, Horace was virtually the number one poet in Rome. Uh, in 17 BCE, he composed the secular hymn for ancient ceremonies, which Augustus had revived to provide a religious sanction for the regime and for his moral reforms of the previous year. Horace was apparently still a loyal friend of Maecenas, the emperor's advisor, as on his deathbed in 8 BC, Maecenas bid Augustus to, I quote, remember Horace as you would remember me. However, Horace himself died a few months later after naming Augustus as his heir. Horace's balance and diversity comprise the very essence of his poetical nature. However, his association with Augustus may have been a less palatable conception, as the idea of poetry serving the state is not a popular one. However, Horace maintained this balance with a tactful assertion of his independence, and because a part of his refusal in becoming Augustus's secretary, he also gracefully avoided various political poetic tasks such as the celebration of the victories of Augustus's admiral and son-in-law Agrippa. He also made no attempt to hide his own mil military service against Augustus in his youth, while 
depreciating himself by saying that he ran away and threw away his shield in fright. Now, intriguing question for you. Have we been somewhat misunderstanding the phrase carpe diem? Because, bear in mind, Horace's enduring relationship with Augustus, together with a certain other factors such as the political autocracy at the time, and Horace's own detached and even uh, sort of evasive personality, then it does become possible to deduce from his poetry certain conclusions about his views and his life. So, to his friends, the men to whom his oaths are addressed, Horace was affectionate and loyal. He was tolerant and mild, but capable of asserting himself when necessary. He was also humane, realistic, and most of all, detached and careful. Now, tell me, would this cautious man really believe the idea of throwing care into the wind and just seizing the day? So, the phrase carpe diem, usually translated as seize day, is actually part of a longer sentence. Carpe diem quam minimum credula postero, which is translated as seize the day, put very little trust in tomorrow. The ode says that, as the future is unforeseen, one should not leave his future to chance. Instead, one should do all one can today to make the future better. Other poets quickly pick up on this. Um, that that phrase actually spawned others, such as Colige Virgo Rosas, uh, Gather Girl the Roses, by Roman poet Ausonius, which encouraged youth to enjoy life before it's too late. Um, the medieval Latin um, Comercium song dating to 1287, De Brevitate Vitae, on the shortness of life, sang the fra- uh, praises about taking joy in student life with the knowledge that one will someday die. Also related is the expression memento mori, remember that you are mortal, which carries some of the same connotation as carpe diem. So for Horace, mindfulness of our own mortality is essential to remind us of the importance of the moment. However, over time, the phrase memento mori uh, came to be associated with penitence. Today, listeners may interpret the two phrases as representing opposite approaches. Carpe diem urged us to savor life, and memento mori urged us to resist life's allure. Neither of these captured the original sense of the phrase as intended by Horace. Nevertheless, the phrase carpe diem established itself in the centuries-long persistence of Proverbs wisdom, um, wisdom of Solomon, Hellenistic and Roman lyric poetry, medieval motives such as ars moriendi, or the art of dying, uh, memento mori, memento temporis, remember the time, as well as writing by Shakespeare and Ben Jonson. These philosophies provide us with interesting interpretation of carpe diem. Most of them were consciously or subconsciously incorrect. 
In fact, Carpe Diem may have been the most misquoted Latin tag ever existed with its enduring scandalous mistranslation as seized the day. The word carpe originates from the word carpere, to pick, not rapere, to rape, or uh, capere, to, to catch, or somere, to take. Therefore, carpe did not convey rush um, pleasures, but the attempt to slow down the present by plucking and grazing. To pick the day, then, one would have been much more cautious in one's movements, careful not to disturb the animals or pick the wrong fruits. This interpretation would also have been closer to what we know of Horace as a man, his cautiousness, his sensitivity to his emperor and his readers, as well as his detachment. We may conclude that for Horace, Time is the part of him that is outside of his full control. Although the new regime of Augustus seemed to be far removed from wars, for Horace, who had lost his home and his position, the new state is a warlike empire. He coped with this by controlling the images of wars through his poem's um, structure, confining them in the outer frame while dedicating the contents of his writings to pleasure under the rule of Augustus. He picked his battles, and he distanced himself from any positions that would have placed him at the center of the empire, um, all to dedicate his work to letting his readers feel safe by teaching them to pick their own battles. Now, <laughs> 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 <laughs>